I'm Hugh Atchison, and this is Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot. On today's show, I sit down with the brothers of Boiled Peanuts fame. They split their time between Charleston and New York. They are the Lee brothers, Matt Lee and Ted Lee. And we're at Empire State South in Atlanta, my restaurant in Midtown. We talk about their new cookbook, Hot Box, Inside Catering, the food world's riskiest business, and how freaking difficult catering is to do well. It's a deep dive into a topic that surrounds us all, all the time, and we hardly even notice. If you're enjoying Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app. That'll help other people find the show. It's nice to show other people. Be a Sherpa. If you're a first-time listener, please subscribe and download other episodes like Ruth Reichel is a Plum, which is a great episode. And last week's episode, Deb Perelman is Smitten. Also a great episode. Here's this week's conversation. Matt and Ted Lee explain hot boxes. I'm Hugh Atchison. This is Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot. We are in Empire State South, and in front of me are two gentlemen who I've known for a very long time, and we've uh, run in the same circles talking about Southern food. Uh, and they are very famous for a number of things, uh, but uh, boiled peanuts was kind of their first foray into success with boiledpeanuts.com. Was that the actual address? Yeah. yeah it is? Yeah. Is it still active? Oh, do you yeah. pay, do you pay yeah. GoDaddy on that? Yeah. <laughs> GoDaddy always comes. Looking out today. People always say, um, how did you get that URL, boiledpeanuts.com? And it's like, if you're foolish enough to start a mail-order boiled peanut company in, in 1994, yeah, yeah. You, 1994, literally 25 years. So that's Matt and Ted Lee, and they just have a new book that we're going to talk a fair bit about, which is called Hotbox Inside Catering, The Food World's Riskiest Business, and it is published by, who's the imprint? Henry Holt. Henry Holt. McMillan. McMillan. Very cool. How are you guys? Great. Doing You're great. splitting time. You've split up. Yeah, we split up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Ted's in New York. I'm in Charleston. Yeah, Matt's in Charleston. He's the smart full one. Full time with a, a suburban household, a wife, and three boys. All boys, right? Yes. All boys. The Lee brothers. And Take two. Ted's still in uh, Brooklyn. I'm in Brooklyn with my wife. She's a contemporary artist. We live and work in the same amazing loft. I was able to build out a kitchen um, she has her studio. And we love it there. That's awesome. But I get down to Charleston like one week every month or so, so it's it works out great. And this book is a it's a bit of a de- deviation from the normal cookbooks of sorts. I mean, last cookbook that came out was really a Charleston receipts type of cookbook about the cooking of Charleston. Yeah, it was a deep dive on a place. You know, we had done the broad Southern cookbook, the simple, fresh Southern, like the way we actually cook on weeknights kind of cookbook. And then we wanted to go like super deep on the stories, the characters and the ingredients. Um, But yeah, this is a career pivot. We didn't want to slice the Southern food pie thinner and do the Lee Brothers bacon book or the Lee Brothers vegetarian love or any of that. Natalie's Dupree's made a career out of that. There's always a Southern cookbook in there somewhere. Yeah, but... Anyhow, our but no, creative, I love Natalie. Uh, but those are beautiful careers. But like, you know, for us, we wanted, um, we we needed something else. Um, yeah. Fortunately, um, we had open. a door open for us, um, and we stepped through it. And you stepped into uh, the world of catering, which is such a strange world. Well, let, let's first of all explain to, to the world out there, because I know what it is. Mm-hmm. 
What's a hot box? A hot box is a dumb, boring aluminum cabinet on casters. Tall, mostly empty. It has rails to receive sheet pans. How many? Do you know by heart? Like it's 46 or something. It's 32. It's like 28, 32, 42. But anyhow... uh, in most places, it's used just to move food from one side of the kitchen to the other. In New York City, uh, around about the early 1970s, they this one guy hacked it to create a jury-rigged oven, basically. A um, And, well, they don't even really endorse the, its use. But widely now, um, for decades in New York City, um, caterers have used it to move the food to the site, on the box truck, to the museum, or out into the open field. Uh, and then once there, emptied, turned into an oven with sternos. Like you'll put two or three sheet pans just crowded with sternos. You light them all in one swoop. And it's such and, a decidedly, uh, uh, it's a very distinct smell of burning sterno. Well, it's supposed yeah. to be so, like not, no fragrance in it, but yeah, I can, can always tell you when it's it. burning. It's like burning dry. It's jellied alcohol. It's yeah. a really weird substance. Oh, it's like napalm. Yeah. It's like simple man's napalm. Yeah. I once spilled some on me and... While it was a flame? No. Okay, that's good. And everyone was like, ah! And it's kind of cold and horrific, but the thing is just to chill. And it just, it evaporates like alcohol pretty quick. I wonder if it'll evaporate into your pores and make you drunk or kill you. It might. But But you're still here. kill us. Yeah, we just didn't do enough time in catering. It's kind of the secret to doing catered food at a large scale in New York City because there's no other system that is um, approved by the fire marshal to do. So you can't, wouldn't really be able to have open flames, so you couldn't right. just hook up a big grill and, or something and like no that. Propane. No propane. And no propane. So City, these are just so, sort of yeah. ambient heat sources. So they'll pack one of these hot boxes on the lowest level. They'll pack it with like 20 sternos, and that'll create an ambient temperature of sort of 225, like a really low roasting oven. But it's hotter. Like most food goes out, you know, a steak's at 125 Fahrenheit, and that's the center of the steak, so you need the exterior to be kind of 150. So that two, 200 level is kind of the ideal. That's where, like, plates are going to get heated. Right. The vegetables kind of finish roasting, right. and it can hold that. I mean, even you, you'll put your bread baskets wrapped in plastic on the top of it because it'll still have that plates. You might have a pasta course in there wrapped in plastic. <laughs> oh, that's going to uh, be good. I've seen a, a hot I don't know why, why do people, with everything. Why do people so, cater with pasta? So, uh, I mean, pasta oh, salad maybe, but pasta. Yeah, like, it's never good. Ravioli. Ravioli. Never okay. good idea. ravioli and gravy but holds we pretty well, ahead. especially I mean, when it's in the gravy we, already. We kind of got ahead of ourselves. I mean, we didn't even learn what a hot box was until after... We had this experience at the James Beard House in New York City, which for your listeners who may not be aware of it, I'm, there probably aren't many, but it's, you know, it's a 75-seat it's a venue. Um, they host guests, mostly, you know, guest chefs, restaurant chefs from out of town. Um, you've probably cooked there. I've cooked there many, many times. Right. And I still have, a, I think, a scar on my head by hitting my head on... It's a very There's small a vent. residential kitchen. That's well, that James been... Beard lived in this house, and it was his sort of uh, weird. It, it, there's not the word to describe it. It's, it's a really weirdly designed house. Uh, like the third floor and the bathrooms and stuff like that are really it's flamboyant and odd mirrored. for the 70s Full and mirrored. Yeah. yeah. And then the, the, the actual kitchen is huge for a home kitchen, but really converted the base. not well designed it's for serving a seven, 70. eight course meal for right. 75. So 
you know, we were observing um, uh, a restaurant, another restaurant chef from Atlanta who was doing an event there and and he'd brought in three guys from a catering company um, sort of as backup, you know, to, as, to execute. Because, you know, what you're doing if you're coming in from out of town is doing an off-premise event. And as you know, they're not easy to do, um, especially at five courses. And so we watched these guys who were caterers walk in that venue at 5 p.m., never having cooked there, never having cooked with, with you know, the chef, Stephen and Stephen Satterfield and and you know they kind of crushed it and they were they just moved in a way that was different from either home cooks or restaurant chefs we've witnessed we've we've witnessed you know and they just had a resourcefulness that was incredible um, but, but that's because these people that's that's what they do they're right. kind of the specialists now catering kitchens like large-scale catering and even small caterings i mean it's kind of like macgyvering everything together yeah. together just transport on the way there's a nightmare it's all coolers everything needs to be hyper organized um but catering is this weird function of it's kind of like doing tv there's a lot of hurry up and then there's a lot of wait yeah. and there's a lot of downtime of kind of waiting for things right. to happen as the food slowly degrades. Right. Well, you know, you make all this planning. It's all about the planning and the preparation. And then you get on site and the run of show doesn't go as planned. Right. You know, those toasts go on too long. And there you are, yes, in suspension, just like holding that holding. food in the way that's, you know, least degrading and yet, you know, still quite warm. <laughs> So did, did you ever did you ever have I mean, pulling off great food under those conditions is really it's difficult. Was so some of this hard. food exceptionally good? So hard. Most of it was. I mean, that's a real surprise to us. Um, having embedded there for four years is that these chefs who are uh, strictly catering chefs are swinging for the bleachers. I mean, they cannot. Part of that is New York. Like it's the highest of expectations. The average diner at a gala or some wedding or anything in new york city is going to be someone who has dined at fancy restaurants around the world they've tasted amazing food they paid two thousand dollars a plate for this gala and like rubber chicken is not gonna cut it right and so you have to bring you know full top restaurant level intelligence to your menu design and to the flourishes and you know danny meyer got into the business not entirely successfully at the beginning but like you know, smart money has gone this direction because there's a ton of money to be made in catering. Um, people need this right. as a service, but it presents these incredible logistical hurdles that no restaurant chef can really even fathom unless they've done it before. I mean, it really is triaging mistake after mistake as they come, as and, the event unfolds. And the contingencies, you know, the contingencies of schedule, you know, the toast, the drunk father of the bride, toast runs long. There are those things, but there's also like, you know, you have weather. Weather, you have this, you know, you have a lawn in East Hampton and it's like soaked with rain from the day before, or it's about to. What downpour. was the term in the book for somebody forgetting something back at the catering facility? A rerun. A rerun. A rerun, yeah. yeah. The, the, mean, the rerun, re getting back is, in the truck that in New York you've just taken 20 minutes to park and have to go back because somebody forgot the one tray of sweet potato chips <laughs> that they desperately need. Yeah. It pretty much happens on every gig. I did this one at the Frick Museum where it was the trustees board meeting just like 12 billionaires me juan soto and patrick phelan three of us and cesar the driver and he had to go back uh for white cranberry juice because the frick 
outlaws any red wine or any red cranberry juice. That's just their rules. Like you can't harm the carpets there. How many white and cranberry juices did they sell that night? I'm, I mean, they weren't selling any. They, they, yeah. Probably no one called for it, but it was just like a requirement. One of these crazy things, and so he had to like the, slog across crosstown traffic. Well, yeah, you need it there because you're trying to satisfy, you know, the event planner of the museum, and she's the one who pays the bills and brings you back in three months when there's another board meeting. And so it's this, it's just like almost 85% of catering is repeat business. And so there's this escalating, like bar raising thing where if it's an annual event. Yeah, it was great last year, but this year I really want to up the ante. Yeah, We've yeah. got some other guests yeah, coming. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh, what do you want? You know, the board like, members, they get bored. Like yeah. people want novelty and it can't yeah, be the same yeah. year after year. It has to get better. Right. We want a Chiapino, you know, table side. It's right. like, uh, that's not, I, okay. Yeah. And then they and have then, to figure it out, which is never out. easy. And and that, but that's the thing is like everything is about figuring things out in the world of catering. Um, but it's also about a lot of mild disasters. I remember catering a very large wedding in Macon with my crew probably about a dozen years ago. And it was a beautiful wedding. But we got there. We were setting up shop. I've got a crew of about 10 people. We're setting up huge grills with propane. And they've already got a massive tent with some heaters. Those heaters that blow like big flame yeah. type of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's right next to where I'm hooking this stuff up. So it's open flame. It's full throttle. It's on. It's heating this tent. And what, I'm hooking up this grill. And one of the propane tanks, the threading goes wrong. Uh-oh. And it's lodged in. But the safety valves it done it and it won't work so it's chugging out propane in my hands it's funny my staff ran over and they were like do you want me to help i was like at this point in time i thought i was gonna die so right. i was like no but you should get out of here and right. i sort of like lay on top of the propane tank and i took my finally got it closed and looked at my hands and my hands were completely bubbled Propane's oh like God. really, really cold chemical. Yeah. And it, it doesn't when burn it expand, in a traditional like, yeah. way, but it burns right. like a chemical burn. Right. So my hands expanded by about three times. They oh were just like bubbles. God. I remember driving back to Athens from Macon, like with my, like, I don't know, the ends of my arms, not my using my hands because it hurt oh so bad. <laughs> Propane is no joke. But these type of things in catering scenarios happen all the time. They're I mean, that the, the most important it's thing insane. at a big catering like that is somebody bring the first aid kit. Yeah. Because inevitably. The first aid kit, there's always like a, a waiter fainting and taking down a jack stand of 120 desserts that you've just plated up. I mean, it's always some disaster. And then, you know, modern cookery is half based on the Ben Renner plastic green mandolin, yeah. which is the most <laughs> devastating, <laughs> devastating tool in a kitchen if you don't use it properly. I make all of my people put on two plastic gloves on one hand, on, one hand, on their yeah. cutting hand, right. before they do it. Before because then if it cuts like cuts you, least, then at least you got two layers of fake skin right. on top of you. At least we can like put a finger cut on top of it yeah. and put yeah. you back to work. Yeah. Well, here's the thing that about catering that's so different from restaurant and really just makes it so terrible, which is that there's this expectation that everyone's going to be served more or less simultaneously. Like in a restaurant, it's spread out over different tables and different parts of the menu in a given night. Imagine if that was your frame of reference, um, having this, you know, this drop where it's a thousand plates, all the same thing. You know, how does that stress out your kitchen? Um, yeah, but I, but that's the thing is like, uh, 
okay, so on setting up a catering, usually you go in these, uh, you know, the six foot table is built into a 24 by six table. Um, and then you run in a sort of assembly line. You're sliding a plate down yeah, and you're building right, your plate right. left to right, right. And you've got the six elements that are on the plate. You've got people doing identical things, mirroring each other on both sides of the table. That get expedited at the end. Even with that system, it takes 20 minutes to plate up 150 plates. Yeah, so were easy. you guys working in scenarios where you had like Multiple 10 of kitchens. those? Totally, Multiple yeah, kitchens. Totally, yeah. So for 4,400 people at the Javits, you have four kitchens each serving out 1,100 people. You're talking about the Robin Hood Gala. Yeah, and the Robin Hood It's coming Gala. up in May. And yeah, it's coming up You know, the talent is usually... Yeah. What is the Robin Hood? It's like it's like Robin Hood. It's like these like the guilty hedge fund guys who are like... You Do know, you get they, to rob they, from them? They, they're uh, just no, benevolently they're like giving it away? Hedge fund guys who like want to raise money to assuage their guilt. And so they literally raise like $60 million in one night. So each ticket's like 5,000 bucks. It's 4,400 people and they auction off stuff and it's sting and Bruno Mars. And, you know, it's a big deal, but it's, you know, it's, it's also sort of under the radar because it is this like extravagant over the top thing. Um, but yeah, so each kitchen is serving 1,100 people. So there's basically like, um, you know, six serving lines. Hold on, we've got some food coming to the oh, table. Wow, it's amazing. Okay. So right here we're going to have the lamp pate. This is a beef brazolo. This is going to be uh, goat sausage. And we also have uh, cotechino. And then beef bologna. Beef bologna, mustards, blood sausage, pickles. Mm, beer mustard, green mustard. Oh, beer mustard. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank um, you. So we're, uh, we're going to be snacking a little bit as we go, but you guys help yourselves. Yeah. Thank you. So... The, the, there are, you, you kind of laid out the world of catering in the prep cooks and then the actual people on site doing yeah. plate up. And there seemed to be a decided advantage to working prep, except when it came to money. Yeah. That the people who go to the events and cook at the events were almost paid double what the prep cooks were paid. Right. We were paid $10 an hour in the prep kitchen. No, you're worth it. And then. <laughs> Thanks. And the fiesta, you know, it's prepper fiesta, and it's character defining. Prepper and fiesta. Most people don't yeah. cross over. We did both. Um, uh, prep ten dollars an hour. Fiesta twenty five dollars an hour. Wow, more than double. Yeah, but, but prep is spread over the week. You know, during the day. And um, you can pick up your kids after school. Exactly. And... So it's usually people who want a more um, regular schedule. Whereas if you're working fiesta, you might not be guaranteed. You might be guaranteed maybe three nights a week, but you might. You know, and, and so it, usually people so, were, in December, you're guaranteed eight that you can't yeah. do. But then in, you know, February, there's you, one. Yeah, it's like dead. So, yeah. You know, it's it, it, you have to you have to be nimble and everyone's a mercenary. Everyone's on like five, five bookers, you know, call sheet. Um, so you have to work for multiple firms if you're working Fiesta. Um, you know, you can pretty much if you if you do the daytime prep gig, you can pretty much rely on no. Oh my God! Boiled Holy peanuts. Boiled, boiled peanuts. And peanuts. Oh my well. gosh! Imagine what are these? What are these? Again? What are these? So these are boiled peanuts. I'm gonna go over the Yum. Uh, we've got more food coming. What do we have? Oh my God! Pizza with the bacon marmalade. This is gonna be porpourri with pepper jelly, smoked fish mousse with pickled mustard seeds, and a little ricotta with olive oil and purple. Beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So yeah. uh, the book. It's really interesting, but it really is a departure from cookbooks. 
Yeah. So writing this type of book, I know how to kind of write cookbooks at this point. I hope so. I've written like four of the, I think I'm still learning. But was this completely different? This took so long, six years. Two, I mean, it took two extra years. We blew through the deadline because it was hard to figure out how to write long stuff and to just digest all the material we had acquired, whether it was um, our experiences or the interviews we did. So after we embedded, we um, did you just use the term embedded? Yes. Okay. Are you allowed to use that when it's not war? Uh, I don't know. This is I mean, kind of more I, like you have, than you have my blessing. kitchen nightmares. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, you haven't, you're not the first person to blanch at the use of that word. Uh, embedded. Yeah. 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 We went undercover. We, okay. We worked. Nice. Um, but then we just interviewed and we interviewed Danny Meyer and we interviewed Liz Newmark and we interviewed, um, you know, the party rentals guy who'd been doing that for 30 the years. Elephant? The elephant? What is yeah, it? The big pink hippo. Yeah. Big Pink Hippo. Party rental. Yeah, Party Rental You Limited. see that company everywhere now. Everywhere, man. They and, and killed that category. They yeah. just gobbled everything up and built the biggest mountain of stuff so that most event planners are going to call them because they have it all. You know, or, That's you know, the thing is, where do they keep it all? I mean, just the amount. That's the other they, thing they have, I don't think people understand is, like, if you're catering for 100 people and it's a seven-course wine-paired dinner, do you realize like, how many stems of glassware is? That's, like, yeah. like four van loads yeah, of just stuff. glassware. And that's yeah. for, like, 100 people. Yeah, um, right. If it's for, you know, 3,000. So the, um, the Robin Hood benefit with 4,400 people, there's three tractor trailers filled with nothing but chairs. Wow. That's just, it's just a crazy part of the industry. There's so many parts of the world of hospitality and food service that I think we see, it's kind of like farming. We have a beautiful bucolic idea of right. it, but we never see the actual machination behind it they've been hidden from us on right. purpose right and like how, you know how nobody does... really wants to see a catering kitchen no one right. does not even the caterers but you know if if you go into the firm I, someone was recently asking us like so what would you suggest if someone's like gonna hire a caterer like how do you know that they're good or whatever and it's like well just go to the tasting and ask to see the kitchen because i do think like at a decent firm that's doing great work if you step in that kitchen, it'll be chilled out. It'll be there'll be and a semblance of order. But there are other ones I've walked into who are executing our dinners, and there's like somebody just stabbed somebody, and yeah. <laughs> you know it's like, oh my, oh. this is not um, good. But um, and to go back to you know the, it took a really long time for us to do this book. It's not it was totally different from doing a cookbook, and it, the 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 way you spend your time like doing interviews, um, doing the experiential part of like you know, being at the parties and then just processing it and being like, oh my gosh, like, where's the story here? Where, where is, where, where do I go from here? How do I make the linkages? How do I take a reader who's not familiar with this material through this in a way that makes sense? Um, and so we sort of came to that kind of, it took us a, a while to find out our, to get in our groove and, and to realize that we were going to need to do a chapter on allergies and on food design and, and weddings sort of, and and to sort of pull back from that like you're in the scene and i'm stressing the canopy like you'd ha you'd need to like for the next chapter you need to take a breath and sort of like see the big picture you know so you there's sort of a balance that you're that you're playing with um how do you guys write as a team it's sort of like your writer editor relationship you just 
we you know have fairly similar sense of tastes and writing styles, um, but we're different people, and so we can see the same paragraph in you know a new light, fresh light. It's kind of fun because that actually just probably makes her doodling, and then you just send it to him right. for his appraisal, and he might edit, he might add to it, he might subtract, um, but you know at least you have fresh eyes on it, and um, and you can you know kind of. Move it forward, but I like that idea. Faster. It's almost like you're you're continually editing each other in a smart way, and your kinship. It's it's kind of like you two are brothers, so <laughs> it like, well, makes it easy. You know, I do think there is this way in which it always moves the ball forward. Like I don't think, like I never get an edit or a piece of material back from Matt where I think like, oh my gosh, like I'm gonna have to redo. You know, like this was the wrong direction. Like. um it just it always sort I've of sometimes builds. had that feeling, but when I do it, yeah. Well, I you I, don't I tend say to, it out loud. I tend to go. Um, it's very rare, but one time I just had to overrule. I am the older brother. Which what piece it was, was it? recently? I'm it was recently. It was recently. I just had a better start. I can't remember what it was. It probably wasn't even anything important. Oh yeah, yeah, and it was a surprise, and I was like, no, you totally, no, it's totally wrong. But you know, at the end of the day, the it's stakes like, were low on whatever that it's was. It's like we're not oncologists. It's just, you know. Nobody's right? going to die. Nobody, ain't nobody nah, die. Well, and, in the know, catering like, kitchen, maybe. We'll still, you know. I want that goat sausage, whatever, the, which one that was. I think it's that. Yeah. Thank you. You're going in. I'm going to stick my thumb in the I'll cut it like a pizza. Do it. Thank so, you. let's, you guys have, for years, um, done a writer's sort of retreat how to write your cookbook type of seminar how did that start it was and are you still was doing fairly it? organic i mean we would just be at food festivals and um you know young chefs uh food writers who would say hey man i want to can i buy you a bourbon and pick your brain about how this whole publishing thing goes on and you'd sort of be like you really need to like it, it's really a longer conversation yeah, and, and it's a lot of decisions um, that need to be made. And, um, and we need to sort of unload some reality on you too, because like from the outside, I think people look, we'd, you know, publish, yeah, like, they're thinking, like that. we've published three books we're proud of. Um, they've won awards. Um, but it's not exactly a business, you know, it's not exact. I mean, it's not like a money, it's not an engine for part money. Of the portfolio. So it's part yeah. of a portfolio of thing of hustles that we do, um, including boiled peanuts, cobble together an existence. Um, and, um, but it's, so we developed a, a series of, of seminars that happened over just two a two day intensive, like workshop environment called cookbook Boot Camp. There's right. a militaristic thing again, but um, and you're yeah. embedding people in the world of they cookbooks. embed in our world <laughs> for two days. We do a little bit of remedial college up front and really talk about like how to best express yourself, what you do because fresh seasonal local is not enough as a, a chef. You know, you have to go deeper and you have to be. Uh, you know, we sometimes we, make them cry. Like, but I mean, like, when I did my first cookbook, I had no idea even how to submit a proposal. And some people think that you write the book first and then sell it, you know, and so it's like there's good news and bad news. Yes. The bad news is 
they're jaded New York editors and they're going to look down their nose at your proposal. But the good news is you only have to spend two weekends and get 35 pages together, maybe 10 recipes, and you're off and running. But the wonderful, uh, my photographer in the first two books was Rin Allen. You, yeah, you all love know her. her. She's she's amazing. Amazing. Rin is amazing, Athens-based artist and photographer. But uh, she and I, both of us knew little, little about submitting a proposal. So we made the craziest proposal ever to send mm, to people. Hold on. So you're actually a case study in cookbook boot camp, and oh, it's good. what not to do. And we hand around your original proposal. We have a copy. I don't know how we got it. And we hand it around the room, and everyone passes around. And is like, oh, Hugh, he's such a visionary. This is so cool. This is like a zine. It's like this. an art project. And we're like... This is how, you know, a publisher is going to say, not for me. You know, it's, it was like too expressive of your idea. We're like, well, you know, Helvetica 12 and like no pictures. Just like let them see something be, in it. You know, I, I still and stand by that proposal. It was this very big success story. And the book went to an auction on the yeah. first one because of that. And it was because it was the thing that people couldn't, uh, they, they couldn't ignore on their desk, which was good. Now, it doesn't, it's not something that could be repeated. Many right. times. Right. No, it was and, kind of the brilliant idea. And you did it so – you and Rin did it so beautifully. It looks so good. And then we show them the actual book and show how it evolved, how the right, project evolved right. from the proposal to the finished and it's, product. It's also – I mean, you know, when you were selling that proposal, you were Hugh Atchison, so you could do that. Oh, they you didn't could, know you me could, from Adam. You were already I on television. Come on. No, no, it was pre, pre-TV. Really? Yeah. Really? Oh, I don't yeah. know. But I do feel like you were – Secure enough in who you were, and 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 you and Rin did have this vision for the book that was very um, specific, and you probably didn't want to work with anyone who didn't want to see that right. vision. Right. Whereas you know, our advice to you know a younger chef sort of coming up, you know, may have been on, may have gotten some attention, is like, you know, if you don't have a specific sense of what you want it to be, you make sure it's like twelve point Helvetica yep. because they want to imagine. What it could you guys really submit with Helvetica because I have to turn uh, my I, books into no, Times New Roman. No, we do. Oh, um, we do Courier, twelve point Courier, twelve point Courier. Whoa, you guys are crazy. Super that old generic, super old school. We PTSD from the being embedded for so long with <laughs> yes. catering trucks, but uh, yeah, embedded in high school in nineteen eighty seven. Yeah, yeah. But so we, we love that. <laughs> Excuse me. It's fun to teach, you know. After the kind of hermetic like freelance writing thing to come out and just like say this is how it's done our parents are academics our little sister's an academic and that's we probably should have been there's but. a lot of similarity my, my dad's an academic and my oldest sister's an academic so yeah, yeah. That, that's the family i was raised in it's it's funny that i never would think like when i was growing up that some of my proudest times are like writers workshops and things like that but mm. i love geeking out on that stuff i went to a writers retreat with janice ray yeah. at her little house out in the middle of nowhere in middle georgia uh-huh. How cool. and she wrote crack of childhood and mm-hmm. seed underground a bunch of other books and it was just a revelatory day of re- sort of rehashing how you write and how you get things out on paper well it, words I, are fun that's you know, day one of the program is, um, are, is sort of like you make those decisions. It's the most personal day where you're telling your story and there's writing exercises. And um, it is this thing where most of the chefs coming to boot camp, like they have, they literally haven't had, you know, an hour to themselves to like 
think about where they've been and where they've come. They're just like thinking about them. Well, and, and, and it's, and the great stuff happens in that day. And like people cry and people laugh and it's like this like awesome, you know, intense thing. And it's, we have six, six chefs per session and, um, and it becomes this kind of group, you know, therapy, but also, you know, decisions get made. Like, are you going to write the book? Or are you going to hire someone yeah, else to, to write, write the book? The book. Is the book about you and your cooking, or is it more a restaurant book? Yeah. And, you know, and you even know. if, you know, the, then the money always in, in reading contracts, it's like you get $100,000 advance and 15 of it goes to a, uh, a agent, literary agent, and then you're going to spend 20 to 30 on photography, which also comes out of your budget. I mean, they should, they charge back now on making the index and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's It's not as, it's not as lucrative as the time you're going to put into it. If you really want to whittle it down, it'll be well below minimum wage. If you document all the hours that you put into it. I remember, I remember saying to a younger chef who was sort of surprised, like, Oh wow. It's like, like, like this isn't like an engine of, cash and it's like no what you need to be working on is your next liquor license like if you or if you don't own it getting a piece of that let's talk about southern food overall what's the current state of southern food um Don't just Charlestonize it. We realize that your 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 scene's good. Your scene's strong. Let's set the stage here. You know, Hominy Grill announced they're closing. I know. Crook's Corner has been taken over. So the classics, you know, the strong, you know, reliables are um, reinventing themselves in some fashion. Um, But it's, I think, never been a more exciting time to to be engaged or love Southern food, um, whether it's restaurant or home cooking. I mean, it's it's interesting also that you know we're sitting down here and you like us don't have a southern grandmother. No, so which is you know, like you guys did this catering book that is really insightful, embed into the world of catering. I find that I have been I have a interesting vantage point as you guys do into southern culture because I'm actually not from here, right. Um, which, yeah, and I, I talked about this in, in, I think, my first book, but and yeah. I don't have to talk about it in public, but, you know, nobody, if you have a Southern grandmother, her popcorn or her, her deep fried okra is always going to be the best. Nobody's right. ever going to be able to compare, right. but um, that's not objective. Um, yeah. So it's always interesting. Yeah. Mm. But we, you know, we're just super excited about, you know, the voices that, you know, I mean, think about the, the books that have come from Atlanta in the last year, like um, Coconut and Collard Greens, Von mm-hmm. Diaz's book. Yep. You know, a Puerto Rican woman grew up in Atlanta, and that perspective is amazing. It's, you know, it's a fabulous book. Um, uh, Turnip Greens and Tortillas, mm-hmm. you know, Eddie Hernandez's book. Um, it, Todd I mean, Richards' those, book. Todd Richards' yeah. book, uh, you know, just Soul. got, Soul just got uh, nominated for IACP award. Yep. You know, this is exciting. You know, this is, this is like new voices coming to the table, and... Um, we feel really positive. Oh, and then people like Michael Twitty, who wrote uh, the he took some food boot camp. book uh, or cooking gene. Yeah. He did. Yeah, yes. he got, he came to boot camp. Um, so there's just so many good thinkers about what it means, what Southern food actually means, right. because it's been so distorted. Even in the last twenty years, it's had so much of a prism of new definition that's important. Yeah, yeah. and and I just think you know people are telling the stories that we sort of told ourselves that we're retelling 
other people's ways of telling the story, and now they're what? deeper. You know, I think the the original, the sort of people are going back to the original sources and being like, wait, now this was the handed down like fable about how this dish came about, but let's go and, and really figure it examine out. more sources. Um, you know, yeah, we have more materials, earlier. more archives. Like, call it deep dive. Yeah. Deep dive, I mean, well, and that's the modern yeah. sense of game at the bottom of scientific or academic rigor being brought to bear on food history in a way that, you know, is considered a backwater of, it wasn't really history. I mean, I think there are actually... Are you saying Paula Dean's been lying to me? Professors of food history at some of the, the nation's colleges now. Yeah. Not the case. So Paula Dean's not lying She maybe. might she, not. I, I think, think she's teaching at Harvard, yeah. Oh, she is. Good. She's embedded... <laughs> so what's next with you guys what are you working on now oh my gosh well we're you know i mean we still feel like there are so many questions we raise in hotbox that we haven't sort of answered in our own minds so uh, this going on tour with the book is so fun because we get to interact with caterers across the country who are sort of you know we were a little concerned we were shining a light on their business in this way um but finding like they're super grateful because it does bring up things about um, I know, think it gives credence to how hard they work and the shit they have to deal with. Yeah. Well, and why was it so hidden for all those years? Why was this book not already written? It we searched high and low to find something. Because a lot of caterers like have shone a light on their operation and the roaches run out. But right. yeah, no, they can't. It's a but self-fulfilling I mean, thing. Like they are excellent food producers because if the roaches did crawl out they would be dead their yeah. business would their be dead yeah that's true that's it's true. really that's sink true. or swim in catering yeah. um but uh and we wrote it for people who know nothing about this world of course kind of the main reader was a guest we wanted it to resonate and be true to the caterer's experience but what we're discovering now that it's out is that every other person has some relationship to catering either they did it in the past they're doing it now or a relative did it or you know Aunt, it's the kitchen confidential of the catering world. Oh yeah, catering confidential was catering. like the working title. Oh, was the it? Short, yeah, the shorthand. The shorthand for it. Um, if we had to explain it to I someone mean, in two words. I always like, do point out that you know it's it's more like heat. I think. Do you remember Bill, Bill Buford's, Buford's book? book? Yeah, because he he sort of dropped into Bobo Kitchen and then worked there and then dropped, pulled out, pulled out, <laughs> and you know the the kitchen confidential. You know, Anthony Bourdain lived that life. And wrote that book, so it's a way more personal, and you know, deeply. Yeah, felt. and this I, is I, more investigative in yeah, a lot of ways. Yeah, so I, you know, I and there's, you know, it's it's sort of a more sociological. You know, it's it's not like, I mean, yes, we were transformed by our experience, but we didn't live it. We had the privilege of well, dropping into that. Did world Kitchen Confidential and, have like lists of crazy um, statistics and stuff? We've got, no, not we've got so these, much. Got these like Harper's Index kind of statistics in yeah. the party rentals chapter or the weddings yeah. chapter yeah. and stuff or the, like that. You know, and just the the weird thing Geeky about like stuff that we couldn't resist. Wedding trends. Like there's this one firm um, in New York that in 2016 sold 600 and something portions of burrata, and in 2017 sold 25,000. 
Yeah, that's so like that's that trend, shows like that, you the food yeah, trend the, impact. That, that impact is just like when it's at scale, it just scale went from right twenty five thousand cases to one. Right, <laughs> the like flash, the you know, the backlash against kale. The, the kale backlash. My favorite detail and statistic is that the um, standard, like how many ounces is it? Twelve and a half ounce stemmed Stem. all purpose wine glass. Yeah, cost here it is right here. The party rental company. Yep. What is it? Cost of party uh, so most commonly rented item in the party rental limited product catalog is a ten point five ounce all purpose stemmed glass. Cost of party rental limited of that glass fifty cents. Price to rent eighty three cents. Highway robbery, right? It's so, more than the cost of it. Yeah, yeah. the it's, cost of goods sold is a, a, a pretty a good deal. But then read <laughs> down further, how many do they have in inventory? They've got a hundred thousand of them. Well, yeah, that's not that much. That's only fifty thousand dollars because they're. Renting them over, but cents. how many do they lose in a year? Quantity of the glassware that they have, it's equivalent to their running inventory. So they lose of their 000. entire inventory yeah. every year to break it. But that's great. Yeah. yeah. So, so basically, it, the yeah. cost of renting it is the the cost of them keeping it from breaking. You so know? why wouldn't you? They just the, the guy the schlepping tray around. That, probably the tray just that holds them. those glasses and that they ship to the site in costs like seventy five bucks. It's actually ridiculously oh, yeah. expensive. And they're always losing those. Um, but then also just the cost of washing. Like the, the party rentals business is really a washing business. So yeah. did you go in there? Yes. Was yeah. that amazing? Oh, it was oh. like Alice in Wonderland. Dude, it was so insane. Is... <laughs> yeah, I haven't gotten that far. I, I think got it halfway through, but I need to get into that is excerpting that it's, chapter. It's one of five. Um, oh, no, no, sorry. It was, the da- it was Daily, Daily Beast, Beast that excerpted, excerpted that cha- chapter. Um, yeah, so you can read it online for free. At yeah. thedailybeast.com. At the Daily Food Beast. Food is doing the allergies chapter. And it's an 800,000 square foot warehouse, and it's one of about five along the eastern seaboard. And it's the biggest one. And it's just insane because it's at, at the same as a storage operation, it's a, also a washing operation because everything gets set But it's out probably the filthy. easiest. Well, it's, it, but the, the rental contract usually stipulates that you'll have to at least get them debris free. You have to clear the dishes. Party rental no, in New York. They, they the reality nothing, is no. they have nothing. Like there's a lamb chop and still stuck to the bottom of it. Everyone's scribbling in quote. Sharpie on the tablecloths and stuff like yeah, that. Like, like the drawing the, the, the entree and where the like spetzel goes and stuff like that. I mean, everyone abuses the party rental <laughs> stuff for sure. And so and, that's why and they, they charge kind of, 83 yeah, cents a glass under the rug. on a yeah, 50 yeah. cent cost mark. It's so yeah. funny. No, he said like that was one of the first quotes. The shit that comes back in, you know, because it's like literally caked on food. Dried. You know? It's like they just like take the hotel pin with like half the macaroni and cheese left and just throw it back into the thing, you know. So, oh, it's crazy. Crazy so world. It's such a crazy so, how world. big is the book tour? Um, it's like twelve or fourteen cities. Um, that pretty big publishers sponsoring. Yeah, it's like it's old publishers paying. Yeah, for yeah, nice aspiring um, writers we get that Coast. in your contract. Yeah. yeah, we went to the West Coast. Whoa, Seattle, I San Francisco, L.A. <laughs> Not really. We were on a panel with Ruth Reichel. And, I love uh, Ruth yeah. Reichel. She's she a special great. person to me. She yeah. kissed us on the lips. She kissed you on the lips? Yeah, I'm yeah. so jealous. You know, I'm going to write a haiku friend. about that and tweet it <laughs> later. Please do. <laughs> no, she's amazing. We had a great panel out there. My last book tour was so weird. I, wrote, I got a free Airstream. And we oh. uh, motored around the country. Oh God, just to make your life easy. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was fun, though. That's Did you great. love it? Yeah, it was the slow cooker book. So the only downside was I'd wake up in the morning after camping out with like four slow cookers cooking all night long. Right. And it'd smell like a 
pork butt, <laughs> uh, which is not great. <laughs> Three that's, dudes and four pork butts. That's funny. <laughs> it was a strange that's trip, awesome. but it was a lot of fun. We like book tour. I mean, it's uh, if you truly throw yourself into it like you did and make it like a performance art piece or campaign um, and try to, you know, do three events a day and just knock down, drag out, wear yourself out, meet all your great chef friends. It can be fun. Yeah. yeah it's, it's and effective. And it can be really effective. I, I, the one book tour thing I always want to do is just do farmer's markets because there's mm -hmm. just an amazing amount of people mm -hmm. and they're all interested in food and they're there for the right reasons. They usually have yes. cash in their pocket or you can swipe a card or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, the, the old idea of, you know, selling cookbooks by going to a restaurant and doing dinners where each customer gets a book. It's just like there's so much work that goes into that on oh, book tour yeah. to so make that intense. happen. Oh, yep. yeah. And we, even with our cookbooks, we're usually one of the events we're doing um, during the, whatever day it is, is um, a cooking class or a demo. And so then you have to bring that level of like, yeah, you, gotta, you have to bring a whisk prep, like, prep for even that. If you're not doing, even if you sent them the demo agenda in advance, you still have to like check it off, you know, checklist you and figure then, out how you're going you to cook it. From, yeah. 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 Like, yeah. I've been watching, uh, I've got the, a bee in my bonnet cause I now want to do a Netflix show or something like that on the, uh, Reboot of Galloping Gourmet. Do you guys ever watch that show? Hell yeah. Yeah. Graham Kerr. We, we republished that book. With oh, our, yeah. Our that's Rizzoli right. With Rizzoli. Yeah. So yeah. You guys like, can get the Graham Kerr Galloping Gourmet cookbook got, by Rizzoli. Or Rizzoli. Yeah. Rizzoli, yeah. That's awesome. Um, that's because of you guys. That's hilarious. He's a friend. Like he, I've got. So um, he used to shoot all that. his voicemails on here saved because oh, he's so hilarious. Because his voice. Yeah, he's, he's so, so funny. But he used to tape those in Ottawa, where I'm from. Yeah. Yeah, which right. is so weird. And he stopped the year I was born. So there's like this. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm now well, I'm trying to get oh, a production to company interested in yeah. doing that. That'd yeah. be great. Um, we'd be happy to connect you with him. I would love to. He's like 85 now, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. He's but great. he's still he lives independently and he drives a Nissan Versa and pumps his own gas. Oh, actually, I talked to him recently. He switched to an electric vehicle. Okay. Cool. No more Nissan Versa. That was his excuse for not attending our but, book event last week. But he was <laughs> out of range. He was. <laughs> You know, he was super ahead of his time, you know, a cooking entertainer. Oh, he was so entertaining, the bumbling. And, but he also used to make crazy amount of mistakes he, on air, but yeah. they, would, they were more funny to him than the entire audience. He right. thought it was hilarious when he'd do it. Masterful comedian entertainer. Like really fast. And everything. Yeah, just his cadence yeah. is just like, he's just like yeah. really quick on his feet and yep. just well, funny. He's still out there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Matt, Ted... Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Pleasure to be on They're your podcast. And We're going to leave you. Empire State South for this spread of It's a spread of goodness. Stir the pot, baby. Stir it away. Go ahead and buy Matt and Ted's book. It's called Hot Box Inside Catering, the food world's riskiest business. Thanks a lot. Eat well. Be swell. This episode of Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot was taped on location at Empire Estate South in Midtown Atlanta. Scott Porch produces the show and Mackenzie Mazel edited this episode. You can follow Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and come back Tuesdays for a new episode. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Hugh Atchison. It's been another weird week. Let's get through this. Thanks for listening. Eat well, be swell.